Father, we are, again, just grateful and in awe of your word. We ask you now that you will take away any distractions from our lives, from our minds, and from our hearts, and help us to focus on your word. Help us now, Lord. We need you. And we just pray, Lord, that we walk away a changed person delighting in you. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Brett, for... uh, for reading the word. Well, here we are, um, Nehemiah again. We are closing in on our series on Nehemiah, and it's, uh, it's been a joy serving you. Uh, and I know I speak for all the elders and, and the young men or the men that uh, have been up here uh, preaching the word, including our teaching pastor, Pastor Rod. And so, uh, again, this is a, it's a heavy chapter, uh, just like everything in the Bible, but Um, This one was a a true joy to study, and so, uh, again, we are looking forward to seeing this thing close. You know, as an adult, um, I never was really a big fan of Disneyland. Uh, I never saw the appeal that that others had. I mean, we do have, we know people who actually go to Disneyland um, once a month, I'm not talking about anyone in here, not, not Peter Tamita. He does not go monthly, I don't believe. Um, but after taking our daughter recently in July when celebrating her third birthday, I, I think my wife and I, our, our perspective has changed a little bit. Uh, we actually had uh, quite fun. Uh, the most enjoyable part, of course, was seeing our daughter um, just have so much fun. Right? I mean, we take her on the rides and, and everything else, and she was just laughing and playing. And so, you know, the minute you enter the park, I mean, you feel like you're, you're really a part of this, this, this fantasy. I mean, it's the Disney kingdom, so to speak, and it, it, it brought back memories from when I was a child. Uh, the movies, the cartoons, the characters really brought all this nostalgia, right? It's like, man, I, I remember I used to just love these characters and love these cartoons, I mean, you walk around, you see all the castles, the make-believe plays, and so forth. I mean, you find that Disney does a good job at making you a part of their kingdom. And for my daughter's sake, we all wanted to play along. I mean, she had the, the amulet. If you don't know what an amulet is, it's a necklace with a little pendant, and it, and it glows. I, you know, um, she had the Disney dress going on. Um, and so I'm, I'm still thinking how I'm going to tell my daughter the truth that the theology of princesses don't exist. Um, so uh, pray for us. But we're, we're really sucked into this world of Disney. We were really sucked into this world of Disney. And I say this because the book of Nehemiah really is a reminder that this is God's world, that this is God's kingdom. And so as we, as we prepare to go through Nehemiah 9, we're reminded of this picture that God was never a part of Israel's life. This is God's story, and Israel was a part of it. God's hand was in control of every single detail that occurred in the life of Israel. And the same thing goes for us. I mean, church, let us never forget that we are a part of God's grand story 
He's never a part of our life. We don't simply invite him into our life. This is really his show. This is his church. God has always been faithful. And Israel has always failed time and time again. If you read through the Old Testament, that's what we see. But in reality, we have failed time and time again. Church, we are an unfaithful people. And that takes us to the aim of our text this morning. God remains faithful to unfaithful people. God remains faithful to unfaithful people. In his kingdom, in his world, in his story, in his church, he has always remained faithful. And we're going to see this through the prayer of confession. We're going to see Israel's unfaithfulness come to light. We're going to see this, this history of redemption unfold. And really, it's the last, story, the last narrative story in the Old Testament. And so this may be the last time they hear this whole story, their story, in the Old Testament, which is really God's story. Let's get into our text this morning, starting with the good, the bad, and the people of God. The good, the bad, and the people of God. First, we find the good. As we learn in chapter 8, we find that through the reading of his word, the people delighted in God. True revival only begins with God's word, and we were reminded of that in chapter 8. Let me read for you Nehemiah 8, 9. And Nehemiah, who was a governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. I mean, we find the conviction of the word, and it grabbed their hearts. What happens after their weeping here? Nehemiah sort of gently rebukes them. Let me read the following verses in, in 8, 11 to, to 12. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. Listen, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. From what we learned last week, we find that it was not the time to be in sorrow, but a time of rejoicing. And so we, we, we see the turnaround from sorrow to joy after the reading of the word, right? And if you remember Albert preaching, they began the feast. Everything was good. I mean, here's the recap. The book of the law was open. The people heard the word, and they feasted. All was good, right? Probably for a moment. But their, their time of weeping would come. And so here we are. We find the bad, or, or I would say the sad, really. In chapter 9, we, we find the story unfold. Reading chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. 
And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Now, if some of you are, are keeping up with the calendar, you'll find that we, be, that we begin chapter 9 a little over three weeks from when they began their celebration. That means that the people delayed their repentance for three weeks. Let me say that again, in case you missed it. Three weeks. It was like Nehemiah was saying, you know, don't, don't cry now. Wait three weeks. Then you can mourn. I mean, eat, rejoice, but your mourning will come. And here it is. Let me point out two things here. Nehemiah never took advantage of their sorrowful state. Okay, he, he, he did not find a way to manipulate the situation. Why is that? I mean, if, if the people's sorrow for their sin was genuine and the focus was truly on God, there would be no additional need for antics from the leaders. Nehemiah knew this, and he did not act upon their sorrow. He simply let the, the process unfold, knowing the time of confession was near. The second thing we find in chapter 9 is that the people did not forget the sorrow they had over their sin. In fact, I believe that they were thinking about this the whole time since the reading of the law. I mean, that's how you know this was genuine repentance. The word of God does not just convict you for a moment. It really convicts you over time. I mean, the word of God is offensive, but it also sanctifies you. I mean, we rejoice in it when we, when we apply it. I mean, that's, that's the conviction. When you go to church to hear the preached word, we don't want you just to go home, have lunch, and be merry. We want you to ponder upon the preached word through the work of the Holy Spirit as you go to work that week, as you take care of your family, as you fellowship with other people. Here's the reason why. We want you to go home thinking and pondering upon the word. is because once you step out this door, the world will pull you in all different directions. So we need, as a church, to stand firm on the word of God. Let me give you an example. You know, Albert preached last week, and I was, you know, I was convicted to the point where I was asking myself, do, do I have joy when I, when, I read, when I read this book? I mean, every day I, I was thinking... You know, have I shared the word with joy to my family? Have I acted joyfully to my daughter because my joy is in God and not on circumstances? Am I truly rejoicing in the truthful word? You know, as elders, we don't want you to leave here feeling like you were entertained. We want you to be joyful because of God, because of the preached word. So did the people understand the preach word here in our text? Did they feel the conviction? You bet they did. They felt it for three weeks. Friends, that, that's, that's genuine repentance. They understood their past. They mourned over their sin and confessed them before God. We find the good, the bad, and third, we find the people of God. 
the people of God, the people of Israel. And the first thing we find with the people is that they fasted. So after all the feasting, it suddenly turned to fasting. If you remember Nehemiah's prayer, he fasted as well. I mean, fasting came when there was imminent judgment or even death. Let me quote a commentary on fasting. Fasting was an outward expression of the inward reality of a shattered heart. It was an urgent response of repentance and great humility. It was the seeking of deliverance from a gracious God in profoundly desperate situations. End quote. Fasting in the Old Testament was facing the reality of our sin, a yearning to repent, and a need for total dependence on God. It was really a call for internal change. Second, we, we see that there is sack, sackcloth involved. And that was really a poor quality garment made of goat's, goat hair and dark in color. It represented or, or symbolized humility uh, and mourning. Third, we find the, the phrase here, earth on their heads. I mean, the fasting, the sackcloth was accompanied with dirt. That's what it really means, dirt on their heads. Another commentary points to the dirt as exposing and admitting their soul, excuse me, exposing and admitting their soiled hearts before God and each other. All three outward descriptions were a reality of what was going on in the inside. Let me ask you, have you ever seen your sin against God in the same light? I don't want to get legalistic about this idea, but when God exposes sin in our life, how do we respond? Do we respond lightly? Or do we respond with a heavy heart, ashamed, with soiled hearts? I mean, does this book convict you to that point in looking at your sin? Because it convicted the people of Nehemiah's day. The people read the word, they celebrated and feasted. Now was a time to mourn over their sins against God. They spent a total of six hours reading and confessing before each other and before God. Additionally, we see in verse 4, we find a group of Levites that read and cried out to God on behalf of the people. Some say that this was actually Ezra's written prayer, and the Levites were reading it to the people. They were getting ready to read it to the people. So the group we find here is really leading the people in prayer, in confession, and in worship. And then we get to verse 5. The beginning of the prayer in verse 5 really sent chills, chills down my spine. The words, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. The phrase, bless the Lord, really means to, to thank the Lord. It was as if the, the group of Levites here started this prayer and said, stop looking at yourselves, Israel. Remove the sackcloth and the dirt, because now it's time to look at God. It's time to acknowledge Him. And we find that in the gospel, don't we? Yes, we're sinners. When we share the gospel or when we preach it to ourselves, one of the first things that we need to do is be reminded of our sin. But we don't stop there. It never ends there. 
We have to look at the cross and the resurrected Christ. That what, that's what makes the gospel so sweet because it overcomes the bitterness of our sins. And we find the same, pitch, the, the same picture here. Derek Kidner says, says this, and he catches the irony of it all. Quote, The barely habitual city, the encircling heathen, and the poverty and seeming insignificance of the Jews are all transcended by the glorious reality of God. In the sadness of their sins, they needed to look at God. And that takes us to really our second point this morning. It's where we find the greatness of God. The greatness of God. Again, we find another shift from the people of Israel to Israel's God. I mean, the people of Israel stood up and thanked and acknowledged God. And you find that this prayer is similar to a variety of prayers in the Psalms. Let me read off a couple Psalms here. Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106. It's almost identical to this particular prayer. I mean, Psalm 106 is, is almost just as identical. We, you can take a look at that at another time, but just note that. I mean, here we find a, a prayer confession to God for being God. It's a prayer confession to God for being God, meaning they blessed God, they thanked God for being God. We find in, the see, in seeing the greatness of God, Israel will now see the depth of their sin through this prayer. They knew they were sinners, and this prayer shows the history of their sin. It walks us again through the redemptive history of Israel. This is their gospel that they would point to. This is their book that they are reading. It was showing them how God delivered them time and time again. The first thing we find in this prayer is a praise for his greatness in creation. His greatness in creation. And the Psalms are filled with praise for God's creation. I mean, his glory is above all the heavens. And it's only, it's only fitting that we find this prayer to begin with God as creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created light and darkness. He created sun, moon, and stars, all the land, all the seas, all plants and fruits, all creeping things. And it is through creation of all things that we see and praise him. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaim his handiwork, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Here's the key point. You see the beauty of God by seeing creation in the light of his glory. When we think of creation, we not only think of the heavens and the earth, but we also think about how he created you and I. Psalm 139, 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, 
intricately woven, woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God created us. He formed us in the womb. Every detail he created, all our imperfections he created. Every aspect of our life he controls. And we praise him for his creation. Israel praised him for his creation. Second, we find God's greatness through his promise. God's greatness through his promise. Here we find the reminder of the covenant made with Abraham. Abraham. The reminder that Abraham was faithful to the always faithful God. It was through Abraham's faithful obedience that came God's promise. And it's found in Genesis 15. We find the covenant of grace from God to Abraham. And we look at the similarity found in Genesis 15, 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Here we find the blessing of a nation under, under Abraham. The promise that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars. Again, this, is, this was a reminder to Israel that God, in his grace, chose them. Abraham was faithful, but God is righteous because he kept his promise. Next, we find God's greatness by his deliverance. By his deliverance. The prayer moves from Abraham to Moses. He established a community, ultimately redeeming them under Moses. One interesting to note in this section of prayer is that Moses, Moses is not mentioned until verse 14. But let's look more closely at this prayer in verses 9 to 12. You know what word sticks out here? Is you, which is God. Verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You made a name for yourself as it is to this day. I'm going to come back to that verse later. Verse 11, you divided the sea before them. You cast their pursuers into the depths. Verse 12, by a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day. And adding verse 13, you came down from Mount Sinai. I'm hoping that you recognize what's going on here. The emphasis of you is unique because they're not praising the great and mighty men of Israel's past. They are praising God. And I know for some of us, God has used various people in, situa in situations in our life and in just, just helping us maybe a pastor, maybe an elder, maybe someone that's discipled you. But again, this, this reminder is that it's all God behind all these people that have helped. I mean, we are just his servants. Moses was such a huge figure in, in Israel's history, yet we find how the prayer describes Moses in our next point, which is the law. The law. God revealed to them the commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, the servant of God. The only holy word that they knew from that time, the law, was revealed to them through Moses. And it's the same law that was read to them 
the past month. We not only find the law revealed, but we also find God's providence. God's providence. God not only fed them spiritually through the book of the law, but he provided for them physically. I mean, the word gave in our text appears over 10 times in this passage. I mean, he provided for their spiritual needs. He provided for their moral needs. He also provided their material needs, bread and water. I mean, God the creator, God the savior is God the provider. And it all belongs to him. Some of us here might not have much, yet through various means, he provides for us. God's greatness is seen through how he provides for his people. The sad reality is that even when God provided all, for all their needs, they still rebelled. They still rebelled. And we find in our next point, God's forgiveness in light of their rebellion. God's greatness in forgiveness in light of their rebellion. Let me read for you 16 through 19. But they had our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return their, to return their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them even when they had made for them themselves a golden calf, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Now remember, this is a prayer, of, of, again, of the history of Israel in the face of their sinfulness. So the, all their sins are being brought to light. But in seeing God's forgiveness... In spite of their sinfulness, they still tasted God's goodness through his, through his forgiveness. I mean, tr true for us, true liberation will come through gospel wakefulness. You know, at times we need to be reminded of our, our disobedience, just like the people of Israel were reminded. Yet in seeing our disobedience, we see the liberating freedom of the gospel we find that we are not guilty anymore. You know, as Christians, we will, sin, we will sin every single day. But every single day you wake up because his mercies are new every morning. Oftentimes, God will reveal the darkness that we have lived in, but he will never leave us there. Verse 19, God will never leave you in the dark. Sorry, verse 19, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. God did not forsake them in the wilderness. God will never leave you in the dark, but he will bring you into the glorious light of the gospel. God does not leave us in our guilt. It is the cross that makes light of how sinful we are, yet it is through the cross that God forgives us. Friends, our, our sins were nailed to the cross, and God forgave us in, forgave us in spite of who we are, 
and God carried Israel despite their continual disobedience. Next, we find their, their blessing, or God's blessing. The prayer continues in that, God forgave, in that God forgave and continued to bless them. God promised, he delivered, he provided, he was patient. I mean, it's just like we're, we're, we're reading through the Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament. I mean, if you ever tried to read the Old Testament cover to cover, you kind of understand this feeling. I had to do it because of seminary, but when you read through the Old Testament, this is what's going on in my head. It's like, not again. Please don't do it. You know, they're being disobedient again. You know, how, how can these people be so disobedient? And it happens over and over and over again. They're not learning. I'm thinking in my head, it's like, really? And it's frustrating. But the reality is, that's us. I mean, we should see ourselves here. And so this is a warning for all of us. Or when we start getting on someone about their, their sin. Look, it's been done for thousands of years. People have fallen time and time again. If the people of God sinned in the past, you know that his people will keep on sinning. And so, thank you to the, the counselors, the biblical counselors out there. You're patient, knowing that sin sometimes recycles itself through our personal lives, maybe even our marriages. And that's why I think Cornerstone is so important, because you're learning really to counsel others, but you're counseling yourself during the darkest times. And sometimes we forget God's blessing because of our sin. So be patient with your people. Be patient with your families, with your kids. Love those in your home group. Love your students at school. Remind them of God's blessing. Lastly, we, we find God's greatness in his mercy. God's greatness in his mercy. And it starts to get very specific here in verses 26 to 31. Let me, let me read that, some of the things that are very specific. They were disobedient and rebelled. They cast your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets. They committed great blasphemies. They did evil again. They disobeyed the commands again. They were stubborn and stiff in their neck. They did not listen. No, this is not talking about our children. Maybe. I don't know. But it's talking about Israel. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament for mercy could sometimes mean compassion. And the greatest example we have as a father is the one we find here who shows compassion. We have a father who exercises discipline, right? But who is compassionate at the same time. He exercises discipline, but is compassionate at the same time. You know, grandparents are great. And if you're a grandparent, um, I, I thank you and I praise you in, in a sense. Um, you know, with, with Piper being the first grandchild, she is spoiled beyond imagination. Uh, and so it's natural for Piper to love her grandparents and vice versa. Um, sometimes I have to tell my parents to stop giving her everything, stop buying her everything, 
And this is their response. Well, we just want her to love and remember us. And there's nothing against grandparents here, um, but as a parent, we have to deal with them when you hand them back to us. (laughs) And of course, Piper loves her grandparents. I think it's safe to assume that giving her everything, the love, the toys, and McDonald's plays a big role. But as believers, we're the same way. Sometimes we want God as a grandparent rather than God as a father. We want God who gives us everything despite how disobedient we are. But in the end, the God of the Bible is a father who exercises discipline because we need it, yet shows us compassion even when we don't deserve it. We find the compassionate father. And so we praise God as a father, not as a grandparent. We are the disobedient children. Do you love the greatness of God? Do you see the mercy found here in God? Verse 31, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are gracious, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Our last point this morning brings us to the appeal of this merciful God. We find the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God. Verse 33, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Again, here's the shift from disobedience in the past to what the present situation is during this time. And so we find, first, the people's appeal. The people's appeal. Look at the phrase, our God. This is important because we find that they see God not as just the God of their ancestors, but as their God. He was our God. They appeal to God to not look on all the hardships they've experienced in the past as a means to deal with them presently. And then it goes that word, Steadfast love has said, that was in Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1, which is acknowledging God's loyalty, his goodness. They were appealing for God to be loyal to them, to be good to them, to be kind to them. Second, we find the people's sin. You have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. The people understood by the reading of the law that they felt the effect of their sins in the past because how they were treated in the present. They had all the warnings, right? Yet they never turned from their wicked works, as the text says. Third, we find the people's condition. The people's condition. Let me note two things that's being said about their condition. We are slaves, and it says that twice, we are slaves. Second, we are in distress. So they were slaves and they were in distress. So the people of Israel were in the land, but they were still ruled over by other kings because of their sin. That was their punishment. What they owned was not necessarily theirs, and they were also taxed by others. As Dale Davis puts it, the prayer concludes descriptively more than anything. 
It was like they were saying, here we are, Lord, as slaves and distressed people. This is who we are. And they needed deliverance from their faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Another commentary puts it like this. The heart of the genuine confession shown here by the people of Israel left with the question, is left with the question, are you going to continue to be faithful once again? Are you going to be continue? Are you going to continue to be faithful once again? Friends, what is what is your present situation now? If there ever was a model of confession to God, this would be it. So if you're if you're presently living in sin, my hope is that you confess your sin and appeal to him. The greatness of God is that he is faithful behind the darkness of your sins. God always acts faithfully when we act wickedly. You know, it's always amazing to see that when we open this book and we, and we read it, we really see ourselves. Ultimately, we see God. You know, I, I've said this before. In, in reading the Bible, it's really reading us. And I was reading this Bible, it's just, it was just reading into my heart. And so let, let me go back to the list, uh, point two, and let me bring this home for us. In creation, God created you and I. Isaiah 43 says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He created us. And it's through his promise, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1. He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We also find that God delivered us from the darkness of our sins into his glorious light. The Bible says no one is righteous, not even one. Yet God saw our affliction, he saw our condition, and yet he delivered us. It is only God who can open our eyes to the beauty of his word and the law that we embrace is a law that was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. We also find that God provides for us both physically and spiritually. Without question, whether we have little or we have much, God has always provided. The spiritual food we receive from the local church is invaluable. We also find God's forgiveness. And again, I can insert verses 16 and following, but we acted presumptuously and we disobeyed God. Sometimes we make idols for ourselves like Israel did with the golden calf. God is ready to forgive. In Colossians 1, it says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In spite of our sin, we still experience the abundant blessings God gives us. Every good and perfect gift is from above, as it states in James. He still gives us abundant blessings, and it's all from him. Lastly, we, we think about the history of our own personal lives. 
if we think about the history of our own personal lives, I'm sure we'd find a, a history of disobedience, of stubbornness, of evil. But we also find his saving grace. From election to our sanctification, and if we fully understand the mercies of God through the redemption of Israel and all that he has given us, the only thing we can do is, is praise him for saving us. God made a name for himself in showing mercy to his people. And it is the same to this day. God has made himself known through his mercy. Remember, church, this is his redemptive story. And we will worship him in the kingdom soon. Let us pray. Father, we are, we are grateful to be a part of your story your church, your kingdom. And Lord, we are just small people living in such the grand story of your redemptive history. And so, Father, before we maybe scoff at, at the people of Israel and how many times they, they've disobeyed, Lord, this is a reminder that this is us and our history looks just like this. And so, Father, we are thankful that it does not stop there, but you have saved us because of your son, Jesus Christ. It was on the cross that you bore our sins and you bled for us, Lord. You rose again so that we could experience everlasting joy in you forever. And Father, that is not something to be taken lightly. That is your mercy, that is your grace, which never ends. Lord, we love you, and we give you praise now. In Jesus' name, amen.